very thankful this morning for the opportunity to proclaim with my mouth what I believe in my heart. That Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no other way to the Father to a relationship with God but by Him. Pat spoke about our struggle with fear. Um, we know that in Jesus we find freedom from that fear because the Scripture tells us that perfect love casts out all fear. One of the greatest fears that uh, people have is the fear of death. In the past few months, I've shared a couple of messages about death and dying. Went through a difficult time of experiencing that in our own family recently. And then we had four messages about heaven. It's really exciting to me to consider what lies ahead for us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And last week, we looked back at the beginning of creation. We went from Genesis to Revelations in a short time. We looked at when, in Genesis, God established an outpost of heaven on earth in the Garden of Eden. God planted a garden and He placed a man there. And it was through that first man, Adam, that sin entered into the world because he and Eve listened to the serpent and they disobeyed God's command. Thus began the generations of men and women who would go their own way in all manner of sinfulness and disobedience. But God had a plan from the very beginning to redeem for Himself a people. Throughout Scripture, we see the plan of God at work, and it culminates in the arrival of His only begotten Son, that one-of-a-kind Son, Jesus, who lived among sinners and yet without sin, who was the perfect representation of love. And in Him, there is no fear. He was the propitiation, the appeasement, the satisfaction of our sins to a holy God. And Jesus, the second Adam, is our advocate before the Father. 1 John 2, 1-3. As we saw last week, the garden was not heaven, but it was a foretaste of the heaven to come. Christ will, with His second coming, establish a new heaven on earth. And all of creation is longing for that completion, for that day that the promise of God will be fulfilled. Romans 8, 23-25 witnesses to our spirits. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons the redemption of our body. For in hope we've been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. There's much that we see in the world today that causes us to groan inwardly in the inner man and to long for the coming of the Lord Jesus to set things aright. The foundation was laid in Christ, and we are His ambassadors, His workmanship, 
the representation of Christ to the fallen world around us. Ephesians 2, 4 through 10 says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. In one of His great I Am statements in the book of John, Jesus declared to Martha after the death of her brother Lazarus in John eleven twenty five through 26 I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. Never die. Martha, do you believe this? <laughs> what an astounding statement and an earth-shattering question. This is the most important question that any human being will ever answer. Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Have you believed this in your heart and confessed it with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord? If you believe, then you have, you have life in Jesus, new, abundant, and eternal. And you've been made alive to God. Your sins have been forgiven, and God has clothed you in white linens that have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. Heaven is eternal life with God the Father, Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is the one that provided the way to God because He is the resurrection and the life. When Christ returns in glory, the eternal heaven will be established on the renewed earth, populated by the sons and daughters of God, redeemed by the Lamb of God. To quote C.S. Lewis again, there are better things ahead than any we leave behind. We've spent four weeks considering what the Scripture reveals about heaven and what is to come with the return of Christ. But what of those who do not believe in Jesus? What of those that answer no to the call to repent and believe? What eternity lies ahead for them? This morning, I want us to consider the alternative to eternal life with God, which is Sheol or Hades, and then Gehenna and the lake of fire. A cheery message this morning, but bear with me. <laughs> Jesus talked a good bit about heaven, but he also talked a lot about hell. It's my hope this morning that as we look together in Scripture to gain understanding and wisdom concerning what God has revealed to us in His Word about hell, that we might be motivated to assist as many people as possible in avoiding it and finding, rather, eternal life in Jesus Christ. First, we discussed previously that there are two deaths. There's a physical death 
and then there's spiritual death. We are all born spiritually dead in sin, separated from the life of God, spiritually dead. We're all descendants of Adam, and this is our spiritual condition at birth. It's during our lifetime in this world that we have the opportunity to find the grace of God in Christ, forever altering our eternal existence. In Christ, we're made alive to God, and as a result, we will never experience spiritual death again. We've also considered that as it, it's at that moment of physical death that the body is separated from the soul and spirit. For the believer in Jesus, our bodiless souls are immediately present in the third heaven with Christ. Remember the penitent thief on the cross, Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's from the third heaven, the highest heaven, that Jesus will return to the earth to resurrect the physically dead in Christ, to join with those believers still alive, and to establish His kingdom on the earth as the new heaven or eternal heaven. At His second coming, His believers will have new glorified bodies. I could use one of those right now. <laughs> now often we think that hell is the opposite or the parallel of heaven, but it's not. Just as the devil is not the opposite or parallel of God. That was his undoing in thinking that he could ever be as powerful or go as high as God. Satan is not God's opposite or equal. He is far inferior, himself a created being. And he's living on borrowed time. When Satan was cast down from heaven to the earth, the second heaven, a spiritual realm on the earth, he became the prince of this world, but only for a time. Christ will return to secure and imprison the devil for a thousand years, and then at judgment he will cast him into the lake of fire for all eternity. Now Satan's realm of influence is limited to this world, to the unbeliever, he wreaks havoc and destruction. We see the carnage every day in our families, in our communities, in the world. For the followers of Christ, Satan can only influence in areas where the believer is not walking in obedience to the work of the Holy Spirit and where God allows testing of the believer to produce faith, character, hope, and love. This is why the safest place for a believer to be is always in the center of God's will. 1 John 4, 2-4 tells us, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming. And now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. Christ has given us the victory over death, and by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts and minds to defeat sin. We are overcomers in Christ. With the return of Christ and the establishment of His kingdom on earth, there will be the judgment. At the judgment, unbelievers will be condemned in their current state of spiritual death. 
which, as we said, is the separation of the soul and the spirit from God. Now, this state of separation will be for all eternity, and the Scripture calls this the second death. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says, These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. That is what will happen at the judgment. But during this life, what happens to the unbeliever who physically dies? Where does his or her soul go? I believe Scripture tells us that it is different since Christ came and defeated sin and death than it was in what the ancients believed. Now they believed that both the righteous and unrighteous were taken by death and that no one comes back from the realm of the dead. Jesus proved them wrong. <laughs> As we pointed out in our early discussion of heaven, neither physical nor spiritual death can be characterized as non-being or unconsciousness, soul sleep, annihilation, or reincarnation. Those are not biblical understandings of death. As the believer in Christ who dies is immediately in the presence of Jesus in paradise, which is the intermediate heaven, so the unbeliever who dies is instantly in another temporary location, separated from the presence of God. Hell is at its core separation from the presence of God. The Bible references a temporary intermediate place of the dead called torment, or the Hebrew word sheol or in the Greek, Hades. This is where those who died prior to Christ went, along with those since Christ who are unbelievers. Now there appears to be compartments or regions of Sheol or Hades in Scripture, with the righteous who have died in one compartment, if you will, and the unrighteous in another, and a chasm between them. Jesus shared a parable in Luke 16, 19 through 31, that depicts this separation that exists between believers and non-believers in death. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. What a miserable existence for him. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, 
for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Mm. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will not repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. In Jesus' parable, there was a great chasm between Lazarus in Abraham's bosom and rich man Dives, who is in the place of torment, Hades. The Bible references another compartment or area of Sheol that serves as a prison for evil angels. That place is called Tartarus, which is believed to be in the lowest parts of the underworld. In 2 Peter 2.4, in speaking about the rise of false teachers, it says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. And it goes on. Vine's expository states that the verb translated cast down to hell here is the word tartaru. And it signifies to consign to Tartarus which is neither Sheol, nor Hades, nor hell, but the place where those angels whose special sin is referred to in that passage, where they are confined to be reserved unto judgment. The region is described as pits of darkness. There are many references to Sheol, Hades, and Hades referring to the underworld, but the underworld is not the final hell. It's the afterlife, the place or realm where the dead go to await the final judgment. Sheol or Hades is the intermediate place where their souls, those souls departed without Christ, await in darkness a judgment that will be eternally worse for them. They are doomed to the eternal hell, which is to come after the judgment and is called Gehenna or the lake of fire. In both places, it's important to note that God is still in authority. <laughs> the intermediate realm and the lake of fire, neither are outside the lordship of God. The Old Testament word Sheol is sometimes described as house of death. It's the realm where dead people go. Satan is the prince of the house of the dead. This is enemy territory. Matthew Emerson, a professor at Oklahoma Baptist University, has noted that the Old Testament portrays Sheol as the bunker of humanity's enemy, the devil, and the exilic wilderness away from the promised land. Yet Sheol is also under God's authority, and Old Testament saints testified to His power to raise people up from the depths of Sheol. In Jesus, God did just that. He entered the realm of the dead himself, defeating death and the grave, and filling the darkness of Sheol with the light of his resurrection. Sheol is described in Scripture as dark, dusty, gloomy. Psalm 88.6 says, You have put me in the lowest pit, in dark places, in the depths. And in verse 12, Will your wonders be known in the, made known in the darkness and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? What a desolate place. 
Psalm 6.5 tells us, For there's no mention or remembrance of you in death. In Sheol, who will give you thanks? Sheol is also described as the abyss, a desolate place at the bottom of the sea. Jonah 2, 2-9. So, Scripture shows that Sheol is a place of darkness, a place of desolation. It's a place where the dead do not remember God and do not praise Him. It's also a place from, where, from which there's no escape by its occupants. The gates of Sheol are locked. It's also a place where God still remembers His people and where He is still King. There's no place in heaven or on earth or under the earth over which the Lord God Almighty does not reign. Ancient Israel believed that there was no returning from Sheol, the underworld, the place of the dead. Both the righteous and the unrighteous alike were taken by death and that no one comes back from the realm of the dead. Job 7, 8 through 9 says, The eye of him who sees me will behold me no longer. Your eyes will be on me, but I will not be. <laughs> when a cloud vanishes, it is gone. So he who goes down to Sheol, Sheol does not come up. Matthew Emerson also noted regarding Sheol, Human beings on their own cannot escape. Only something unexpected entering into the realm of the dead and breaking down the gates from the inside could ever hope to defeat both hell's gates and their master. Storming the gates for mere humans is futile. Romans 5.8 tells us, But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ, who knew no sin, became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He died to rescue me from the sting of death. Jesus Christ stormed the gates of Sheol to rescue the righteous. Now, what do I mean by that statement? Do I believe that Jesus actually went into the depths of hell? The Apostles' Creed contains the words referring to Jesus, He descended into hell. That wording is not found in Scripture that I've seen. It appeared in a wording of the Apostles' Creed dating about 390 A.D., which is 300 years after the church was established. It didn't appear again until about 650 A.D. And in the earliest copies of the Apostles' Creed, the phrase was absent. So its origin is really questionable. I don't believe there's any scriptural basis for Jesus actually descending into hell. On the cross, Jesus told the penitent thief, Today you will be with me in paradise. A while later, he declared, It is finished. I believe it was finished. <laughs> the full measure of hell that Jesus suffered... He suffered on the cross. He suffered on the cross. He was exposed fully to the wrath of God on the cross where Paul says, He became a curse for us, for me. He did not need to go to hell to suffer the full punishment of hell for us. He took the full punishment of hell during the atonement 
on the cross. R.C. Sproul explains it this way. Jesus' atonement was of an infinite value, and being of infinite value could cover and satisfy the demand for eternal punishment, so that the value of it, even though it was only temporal, for the Son of God to suffer in our place for our sins, it was accepted to God as a sacrifice to pay for the penalty that was our due. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, and he commended his spirit into the Father's hands. So with that understanding of the atonement, we can view the work of redemption in this order. He was crucified, descended into hell, dead, and buried. I do believe that the atoning work of Christ on the cross accomplished in Sheol or Hades the tearing down of the gates of hell in a similar way, perhaps, as to the veil in the temple that was rent while he was hanging on the cross. With that view in mind, Matthew Emerson continued, Because of Christ's atoning death, descent to the place of the dead, and glorious resurrection from the dead, Sheol is no longer the enemy's bunker. The strong man's house has been plundered. Because of Christ's work, Sheol is no longer the exilic wilderness. Israel's suffering saint has walked through this valley of the shadow of death, Sheol, and emerged victorious on the other side. And now he guides all those who are united to him by faith through that same valley, shining the light of his resurrection to guide us. The gates of Sheol will not prevail against Christ's church because Jesus has already broken down its doors. Jesus defeated death, nullifying its sting once for all. John the Apostle recorded in Revelations 1, 17 through 18, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one, and I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Psalm 16, 7-11 proclaims, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because He is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Joe Rigney, a theology fellow at New St. Andrews College, shared these thoughts about this passage from Psalm 16. We sing Psalm 16 differently than King David did. For David, Psalm 16 contained a bit of a puzzle. It's found in verse 10. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. This verse is a puzzle because of a simple fact. David died. He was buried. His soul was abandoned to Sheol. 
He was laid with his fathers and saw corruption, Acts 2, 29 and 13, 36. And not only David, but all of the saints in the Old Testament died in this way. Psalm 16 gives us a window in what happened when people died. At death, the soul is separated from the body. The body is laid in the ground and decays. The flesh falls to corruption. The soul is sent to Sheol, to Hades, to the realm of the dead. The righteous journey to Abraham's bosom, to the place of waiting, while the wicked land across the chasm wide in a place of torment. But everyone, wise or foolish, rich and poor alike, everyone goes the way of all flesh. No man can ransom another from the power of Sheol. No amount of wealth or riches can suffice to keep us from the place of the dead. Death comes as a shepherd, and all of us are his sheep. David sang verse 10 as a puzzle, as a riddle, until the Messiah came. His flesh did not see corruption. <clears throat> Jesus came to the city of death. He entered the gates. Doors that no man can open, he slammed shut behind him. But Jesus was no mere man. Unlike those who had come before, he had come to this city willingly, voluntarily. He had laid down his life of his own accord. No man took it. He had the power to take it back up again. He had come to rip the doors off the city of death. He had come to blaze a path of life back to eternal pleasures at the right hand of God, not only for himself, but for every sheep in his fold. So hopefully we've established, as I understand, that the temporary or intermediate place where the souls of unbelievers go at death and from where they await the final judgment. At that judgment, their eternal fate will be sealed, their judgment pronounced, and they will be cast into the lake of fire, which is likened to Gehenna. Both Gehenna and the lake of fire are symbolic of eternal destruction. The word Gehenna is used 12 times in the Bible. It's sometimes translated as hell, but Gehenna is different from hell. Gehenna is the Aramaic form of the Hebrew word for Gehenim or Valley of Hinnom. It was located on the south southwest side of Jerusalem in the seventh part of Jerusalem, according to Joshua 15.8. In this valley, there was a hill called Tophet, on which child sacrifices were performed during the time of Isaiah and Jeremiah. Ahaz and Manasseh sacrificed their sons there to the pagan god Moloch. Because of this abomination, God called it the Valley of Slaughter. In 2 Kings 23.10, during Josiah's reforms, he defiled it and tore down the high places where the child sacrifices had taken place. The Jews came to refer to this place as the entrance to hell, and eventually later as hell itself. Because God had declared it abominable, the place could not be used by the Jews for anything, and thus it became a city garbage dump. The inhabitants of Jerusalem would throw their garbage over the city wall to the dump below, where fires burned continually. 
According to Isaiah 30, 33, God set it afire with His breath like a torrent of brimstone. It existed during the time of Christ, and Jesus used this physical place that everyone knew and all were familiar with to illustrate a metaphysical place called Gehenna or hellfire. Of the 12 times Gehenna is mentioned in the New Testament, 11 are from the lips of Jesus himself. For instance, in Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather feel him, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The word for hell here is Gehenna. <clears throat> it's a place of fire that burns continually. It was also a place where the bodies of executed criminals were disposed of. Parenthetically, if Joseph of Arimathea had not gathered up his courage and asked Pilate for permission to take Jesus' body, the Roman soldiers may have discarded of it in Gehenna or into a mass grave. Of course, God would not allow that. He sovereignly provided a rich man to care for the body of Jesus, which was placed in a newly hewn tomb. For a soul separated from the presence of God, Gehenna would represent hellfire, unquenchable fire, a lake of fire burning with brimstone, where there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of great torment and unending agony. If you were a Jewish citizen of Jerusalem, you were familiar with Jesus' words regarding Gehenna. And that was not a place you wanted to end up. Well, this is an introduction to Gehenna, this physical Gehenna. There's much more to learn and study about the spiritual Gehenna, and we'll look in more depth at a future message. But let me close this morning with a couple of thoughts concerning Gehenna and the eternal hell. I don't believe that the fire of hell represented by Gehenna or the lake of fire is necessarily literal fire. I believe it's spiritual and implies that the suffering in the next life for the unrighteous believer will be as terrible to the soul as fire is to the body. J.O. Williams once observed, it's a physical symbol of a metaphysical reality. It will be a place of great darkness and the absolute withdrawal of God from the presence of men. And it will be unending. If the consideration of that one thought alone does not implore us to seek every opportunity to reconcile sinners to their Savior, then may God help us all. In closing, J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, said this concerning hell, and I think it wraps up the message pretty well. But what does it mean to lose our souls? To answer this question, Jesus uses His own solemn imagery, Gehenna, the valley outside Jerusalem where rubbish was burned. The worm that dieth not, Mark 9.47. An image, it seems, for the endless disillusion of the personality of a condemning conscience. Fire for the agonizing awareness of God's displeasure. Outer darkness 
for knowledge of the loss, not merely of God, but of all good and everything that made life seem worth living. Gnashing of teeth for self-condemnation and self-loathing. These things are no doubt unimaginably dreadful, though those who have been convicted of sin already know a little of its nature. But they are not arbitrary inflictions. They represent rather a conscience growing into the state in which one has chosen to be. The unbeliever has preferred to be by himself, without God, defying God, having God against him, and he shall have his preference. Nobody stands under the wrath of God save those who have chosen to do so. The essence of God's action in wrath is to give men what they chose, what they choose, and all its implications. Nothing more, nothing less. We need, we need, therefore, to remember that what God is hereby doing is no more than to ratify and confirm judgments which those whom He visits have already passed on themselves by the course they've chosen to follow. Let's pray. Lord, these are heavy words from Scripture. So many times we're too casual about eternity, about hell, about the ramifications of unconfessed sin. As I read these words and share this morning, Lord, my heart is so full of thankfulness and gratefulness that You have revealed Yourself to me in the person of Jesus and that in believing in Him, I have life. And I will avoid all of this. And at the same time, I'm sorrowed and burdened for the people that I know that have chosen death by not choosing life. Lord, I pray that Your Word would be living and active within us right now. That You would stir us to areas where perhaps there's unconfessed sin that we need to to give over to You, that we can serve You with a clear conscience. And if You would sear within us, Lord, images of people that we know are lost without You. As part of our redemption by Your blood, You have called us to a ministry of reconciliation that we might implore others be reconciled to God. Father, this week I pray that You would stir within us a desire to take every opportunity. Open our eyes to those opportunities that we overlook and miss every single day. Perhaps we are fearful of sharing the Gospel. Perhaps we overthink it. Lord, I just pray that it would well up within us like a, a, a river of life. <laughs> that we would be so full of You that we can't help but spill over. I'm reminded of the person that said the most pathetic thing in life is a half-full Christian trying to spill over. So God, we 
ask you to fill us as we empty ourselves daily, as we die daily to our own desires and our, all, our own understanding and rely totally on you. We confess, Lord Jesus, that you are the resurrection and the life. There is no life apart from you. But oh, what great things await us because of you. May we be somber, Lord, in the reality of eternity and joyful at the same time because of Jesus. In your name, amen.